This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. It's estimated that most human beings use only 10% of the brain's capacity. Imagine if we could access more of our cerebral capacity. This is the question posed by Morgan Freeman's character in the Scarlett Johansson film, Lucy. In the film Limitless, more recently made into a TV series, Bradley Cooper's character is convinced to try a new drug. His friend explains, You know how they say we can only access 20% of our brain? Well, what this does, it lets you access all of it. And you get versions of the same idea on TV, and shows from Star Trek to Heroes to Fringe, and, well, across all aspects of popular culture. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. This is the 10% brain myth, a ubiquitous trope in popular culture. The idea that we somehow use only 10% or some other small proportion of our brain capacity, and that unlocking or accessing the remaining 90% will result in vastly increased mental capacities. Sometimes the idea is fully believed and earnestly repeated. Sometimes it's very knowingly appropriated for the purposes of a good plot. Sometimes it's confidently asserted to back up dubious claims of psychic abilities. Here's Yuri Geller, renowned bender of spoons, from his Mind Power book. Our minds are capable of remarkable, incredible feats, yet we do not use them to their full capacity. In fact, most of us only use about 10% of our brains, if that. The other 90% is full of untapped potential and undiscovered abilities, which means our minds are only operating in a very limited way instead of at full stretch. Sadly, the 10% brain myth is precisely that. A myth. It's an attractive and pervasive idea that has lodged itself in the popular imagination. The idea, as any neurologist will tell you, is demonstrably false. Our brains are constantly working, different areas at different times for different processes, but we use all of our brains, as can be verified on PET, fMRI, EEG, or any of the other acronym-filled scans neurologists like to use. It also makes very little sense on a basic evolutionary level. The brain is a big organ. Expending all that energy to carry around something that size, if 90% of it was useless, would be a terrible idea. And evolution's usually pretty good at that sort of thing. So where did this stubbornly enduring idea come from in the first place? How has it permeated our culture? And what does it say about our understanding of intelligence and the brain? Well, the appeal of the idea is obvious. We're all potentially geniuses. We just can't access that part of our brain that we need to, or at least not yet. And rather than work or study to augment our intelligence, it's far easier to just use a drug or a newly invented technology to unlock this untapped potential. It's a hack for the brain, and we all know how much everyone loves a good hack. YouTube would appear to be made up of, other than cat videos of course, a constant stream of people life-hacking their way to success by, you know, organizing their electrical cables with toilet rolls or whatever. I mean, I'm all on for hacks in the sense of genuinely useful and innovative ways of repurposing something, but so often hacking is just a quick fix, a superficial shortcut to doing something properly. 
And the 10% brain myth definitely overlaps with lots of these quick fix ideas. Let me read you an extract from an amazing piece of spam I received while researching this. This is honest experiential suggestion which is working for me and millions across globe. Go to www.blablabla. They have a well-researched 12-level course with self-help audio program. Believe me that at level 3 I feel my brain has doubled power of intuition, love, compassion. You will not regret. Do that course if serious for self-help. No vested interest, nor it's a joke. Pure science of brain. There you have it. Pure science of brain. But the 10% brain myth is far older than the internet. It actually appears to have been around for about a century now. As with most myths of this type, they often merge together from multiple sources and then they mutate and are updated across different times and different locations. Certainly how we think about brain and cranium size and brain use are closely linked, and I'll come back to that in a minute. It seems likely that late 19th and early 20th century brain researchers, quite frankly admitting that they simply didn't understand yet what large parts of the brain actually did, may have contributed to the common perception that these parts didn't really do anything at all. A lot of historians of science also point to the American philosopher and psychologist William James. James was an extremely influential thinker and one of the founding fathers of psychology in the US, as well as the brother of Henry James, the famous novelist. He wrote lots of popular articles in which he argued that we use only a small percentage of our potential, and this idea may have been misconstrued or manipulated, whether deliberately or not. It certainly gained widespread currency when Lowell Thomas wrote the following in the introduction to Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Professor William James of Harvard used to say that the average person develops only 10% of his latent mental ability. Dale Carnegie, by helping businessmen and women to develop their latent possibilities, created one of the most significant movements in adult education. Carnegie's self-help book was phenomenally popular from its first publication in 1936 onwards. He basically invented the self-help book, and it still sells huge numbers of copies today. It's actually one of the best-selling books of all time. And this connection with self-improvement and the burgeoning self-help movement of the period is a key part of the origins of the 10% brain myth as well. So the myth then emerged in the early 20th century, particularly in the US, and this was the same time and the same place as the emergence of pulp magazines. These were cheap, mass-produced magazines filled with genre fiction, science fiction, detective fiction, horror, and so on. This was the time when most of the genres as we now know them first became established. And this is where fact and fiction, science and myth mix together. Where ideas about how much of our brain we use find their way into popular culture, particularly into science fiction stories. Scientists today may be confidently dismissive of misunderstandings and misappropriations of neurology of this type, but the brain is a vastly complex organ and there's still lots we don't understand about it today. Science fiction stories in particular thrive on these gaps in knowledge, and for most, including those films and TV shows I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you only need a few sentences of good neurology technobabble to set up your plot of superintelligence. Good God, Professor, I've never seen such rapid neurogenesis in the synaptic connections of the cerebral cortex. Or something like that. That's today. A century ago, considerably less was known about the brain, and science fiction and other pulp tales happily exploited these ideas. 
This was a time when psychology was just being established, when there were new statistical measurements of intelligence, when people were trying to compare the brain sizes of criminals and supposedly ordinary people to see if they could detect differences, when there were serious scientific investigations into things like telepathy and mind reading. There was plenty to draw on for the writer of popular fiction, and the stories of this time are filled with people who can access hidden brain powers with super-intelligent aliens or with mad scientists, usually with large heads, who have created artificial brains. And if you want to indicate superintelligence, someone who can use that elusive 100% of their brain, there's a pretty easy shorthand. Give them a huge skull. H.G. Wells, the great science fiction pioneer, had tried to imagine what Martian life would look like and concluded, as he noted, they must have big brains because of their high intelligence, and since almost all creatures with big brains tend to have them forward in their heads near their eyes, these Martians will probably have big, shapely skulls. His imaginings would go on to influence countless other stories of aliens, future humans, people with superintelligence, and so on. There's a quite well-known short story, definitely influenced by Wells, called The Man Who Evolved by Edmund Hamilton. In the story, the narrator recounts his experience in the laboratory of a friend, Dr. John Pollard. Pollard has discovered that the cause of evolutionary change is the suitably vague cosmic rays, and he's managed to build a machine which can concentrate these rays on a single individual, so that someone can undergo evolutionary changes in minutes that would normally take millions of years in real life. So Pollard performs the experiment on himself, with the narrator looking on. He enters a chamber and leaps forward through millions of years of evolution in 15-minute stages. After the first transformation, he's described as... Godlike. His body had literally expanded into a great figure of such physical power and beauty as we had not imagined could exist. He was many inches taller and broader, his skin a clear pink, every limb and muscle moulded as though by some master sculptor. However, with each subsequent burst of cosmic rays, his brain and intelligence grow at the expense of his body. Firstly, his body becomes thin and shriveled while his head becomes much larger. Another leap forward, and he becomes a huge hairless head about a yard in diameter, supported on tiny legs. Next, he's simply a twitching brain. There's no more body. And finally, he reaches the end of the evolutionary road and becomes what the narrator can only describe as a shapeless mass of clear, jelly-like matter. The narrator is horrified at what the scientist has become, and this presumably incomprehensibly intelligent future human is left in the laboratory, helpless to defend itself when the lab burns to the ground at the end of the story. The Infinite Brain by John Scott Campbell is another story in which a supreme intelligence is created, although this time in mechanical form. When the narrator, Gene, discovers the dead body of his mechanic friend, Anton, he finds instructions to turn on a machine. This machine types a message explaining what has happened. I, Anton de Rube, am dead. My body is dead, but I still live. I am this machine. These racks of apparatus are my brain, which is thinking even as yours is. Anton has managed to duplicate his mind using an invention he's named the telepather and transfer it to a machine before his death. But this is only the first step in the creation of a machine which its inventor has intended to be all cerebrum. This infinite brain can access and improve the normally unused or underutilized sections of the brain. It's the 10% idea again, although in this story the figure is 25%. 
The machine first convinces Gene to help it improve itself, and soon reaches the point where it can physically restrain Gene when he realises that the machine is actually a threat. The machine, as its intelligence improves, becomes mobile and modifies itself further to be able to communicate. Events soon turn disastrous as Gene escapes, only to realise that the machine has developed a Violet Ray superweapon with which it intends to destroy humanity. As the destruction of New York continues, Gene must find a way to stop the machine and save the world. A lesson for those transhumanists who want to upload their brains to computers today, which you may recall was the topic of last week's episode. These stories are both from the early 1930s, and there are lots and lots of other similar tales. They both use technology to access latent superintelligence in humans to unlock that 90%. But it's interesting that there's a clear anxiety, even a horror, about the development of the brain at the expense of the body. The brains become unfeeling, they coldly disregard the concerns of humans, and their actions mark them as insane. They're also very vulnerable. The stories of this type invariably end with the destruction of the superintelligence. As mentioned, Dr. Pollard's perfect intellect is left to burn in a laboratory fire which it's in no physical position to escape. Anton's mechanical brain leaves itself vulnerable to Gene's brave actions and it's disrupted and defeated via radio signals. The great mechanical brain is left alive but abandoned at the bottom of the ocean. So there's a fascination with technology-based quick-fix solutions to increased intelligence, but a fear of what the brain may truly be capable of if left unchecked. You could also link it to a preference for practical knowledge and self-improvement over abstract theory and intellectualism. After all, and thinking about Dale Carnegie and the self-help movement, these stories were all published in pulp magazines awash with advertisements for self-improvement and self-education. The pulps were funded by ads for short practical courses in radio, journalism, or mechanics. And there are some lovely pulp magazine covers and ads on the website you can have a look at too. These stories from the pulp era are important because they are, in this case, where popular culture combines with science, both real and imagined, misunderstood and knowingly appropriated. And the 10% brain myth has continued to influence both fiction and reality in the decades since then. It has endured on one hand because, well, it's a useful plot device, but there will always be an appeal to knowing without having to study, to mastering something without all that work involved, to hack your way to success. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm just going to go and try out this one weird tip to increase my brain power overnight. I'll let you know how it goes. That's it for another week of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. You may have noticed that I confidently announced on the last episode that this week would be on Utopias. Clearly, that didn't happen. I still have a little bit more work to do on that one, but it will be out soon. However, there will almost certainly not be an episode at all in two weeks because my wife is having a baby any day now, so I will be a little bit busy. But keep an eye on the social media pages, the shows on Facebook, Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at CEDread, and I'll let you know when the next episode is ready to go. Special thanks this week to Alan Byrne, who did all the extra voices you heard. Alan is the producer of a new short fiction podcast called Walter Kane Broken Pieces. It's just started. There are five episodes so far, and it's great. I've really been enjoying it. If you like the type of fiction I've been talking about on this episode, I'd recommend maybe starting with the story Shrink, but have a listen to them all. They're, they're really, really good. 
Um, you can listen to the show on the usual podcast places and on the 8mm network. That's 8mmnetwork.com. And they have a few other shows as well. I'll put all the links on my website too. That site is wttepodcast.com, where you'll find all the links, some lovely Pulp Fiction images, as well as lots of previous episodes, articles, and lots more. There were quite a few sound clips and lots of music on this week's episode, including Overhead the Albatross. Details and links to all this are on the website as well. So that's it for another week. Please spread the word, tell your friends, tweet about the show. It all helps so much. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.